Hello, and welcome back to Boundaries Plus. I am Portia, your host. I'm so glad to be back with you. It has been about a month since we've last checked in, and a lot has happened over that last month, and I'm glad to be back with you all. Um, This episode is going to be a little bit different than other episodes. If you happen to be subscribed to my Patreon or to my YouTube channel, then you know that I have been reading the book White Rage. It's uh, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divides by Carol Anderson. And I've been reading the book aloud, almost like a book club type situation. So on my Patreon, it's released on Thursdays, excuse me, on Fridays. And on my YouTube channel, it's released on Saturdays. And It's been a really interesting activity. I've gotten great feedback about it, including, you know, some journal prompts, some thinking about how this book, where right now we're describing right after the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans, how how similar time is from then to today and history has been a continuation of itself as opposed to repeating itself. So if you're, again, not on those two places, I would love to have you join the community as well. Uh, if not, just pick up the book and read along if, if you have an interest in it. Uh, but today, as I was reading or continuing the reading of chapter two, I realized that there was a, a correlation between what was happening uh, during the the Great Migration, the, the attempted derailing of the Great Migration, and what's currently happening in, in Palestine and Israel, uh, specifically in Palestine, what's happening with the the attempted genocide of Palestinians. So uh, what I'm doing today is for this episode, I'm gonna go ahead and include this portion of the book that I'm reading. It is the back half of chapter two, um, starting from page 60 going forward. And I we discuss at the end, or I discuss at the end, again, the connection, the correlation of, of the, the two instances, how they're very similar, and also touch on ways that you can make your voice heard while also making sure that you're taking care of your mental health, because that is also important. This is a really, really, really hard time in the world right now. And I know a lot of people are doing their very best to make it on top of, you know, to make it throughout the day on top of also wanting to make sure that they're advocating and staying educated. So uh, we're gonna break from this, or I'm gonna break from this and then include the clip from that reading as well as the discussion and some journal prompts at the end. And I would love to hear your feedback in any way. And like I say at the end of the book reading, I'm gonna say it here too, so you hear it a couple of times, make sure that you are taking care of yourself, make sure that you're staying hydrated, make sure that you are taking care of your body, that you're breathing, that you're checking in with yourself, making sure that your shoulders aren't clenched, that your jaw's not clenched, that you are inhaling and exhaling. It is, as I mentioned, it's a tough time right now. And admittedly myself, I'm, I've had some feelings of hopelessness and that does not happen to me often, but it's understandable again with what we're, what we're dealing with right now. So thank you again for you know listening and, and thank you in advance for any feedback that you have. And let's just keep doing our best. Let's keep doing our best to get to a place, a place of healing in some way. I love you all. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the reading of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson. If you've been reading along, we are on chapter two still, Derailing the Great Migration. 
when we last left off, we were talking about an incident that happened at a Mr. Sweet's house, a Dr. Sweet's house, where he had moved into a predominantly white neighborhood and authorities and the neighbors were doing their best to get rid of him. If you have been reading along, we're on page 60, the third paragraph. Let's go ahead and jump right in. A reporter from the, the a reporter from the Detroit Free Press who trudged through the rocks and debris at the Sweets home listened to Shucknet repeat the tale of neighbors walking the streets on a warm summer evening and then add a tantalizing new piece of information. When the officer and his men searched the home on Garland, they found nothing less than a full-blown arsenal, rifles, handguns, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition when the, when the place was barely furnished. The implication was clear. This was not a home where people intended on living. It was instead a sniper's nest from which bullets were sprayed into a peaceful, calm neighborhood, killing a husband and father while sending another man to the hospital. Shuk's next story was explosive and the Detroit Free Press ran with it and was quickly followed by its rival paper, the Detroit Times. A reporter for a third newspaper in town, the Detroit News, had also been there that night. A nigger family has moved in the neighborhood and they're going to pit them out. Philip Adler heard a woman say. As he worked his way through the throng, Adler saw the rocks rain down on the suite's home, and then he heard the shots. Contrary to Shucknuck's account, Adler saw the suites had been under an unrelenting attack while the police stood by and did nothing meaningful to stop it. However, Adler's editor refused to run his story and instead reiterated Shucknuck's version. By evening, Detroit's three newspaper had Three newspapers had 500,000 copies blanketing the city, each of them condemning the suites as killers. It was like throwing gasoline on a fire. Since the war, Detroit had become Klan country, 35,000 members strong. Thus far, a coalition of white, ethnics, and blacks arrayed around the slogan, Keep Detroit an American City, had managed to beat back the Klan's challenge for the mayor's office. Now, Mayor Johnny Smith, who had helped wield that coalition and whom Blacks had come to view as an ally, sucker-punched his African-American con constituency in an open letter to the police commissioner. He saw the KKK's hand behind the outrage on Garland Avenue, which, given the violence that rained down on the suites, initially made sense. But as Smith unveiled his logic, it was not the mob that incurred his wrath, but the suites, who had the temerity to move into a white neighborhood. The Klan, he railed, had worked overtime to induce Negroes to go into districts populated entirely by persons who would resent such an invasion. The point of such an incursion, he asserted, was to spark a race war that would blow Detroit apart and deliver the city to the KKK. Unfortunately, the mayor continued, the Ossian suites of this world had been willing pawns in this power play. If the Negro would just stay in his place, he wrote and quit demanding to exercise every last little right which the law gives him, quote, then there would be peace in Detroit. Like, shut up and dribble. I shall go further, Smith then added. I believe that any colored person who endangers life and property simply to gratify his personal pride is an enemy of his race as well as an incident of, rice, of a riot and murder. I believe that any colored person who endangers life and property simply to gratify his personal pride. They're describing life and property 
as prideful things. Even for Detroit's liberal mayor, peace was based on Black people quietly and gracefully accepting the fact that they had no rights, no right to their rights. As he read the police reports, the interrogation transcripts, and the newspaper accounts of what happened that evening on Garland Avenue, Wayne County Prosecutor Robert Toms would go on to be tapped as a judge to oversee the Nazi war crimes trials at Nuremberg, spotted an obvious weakness in his case. All those arrested, despite the fact that their stories rippled with inconsistencies, agreed that the house was under attack, that rocks were, quote, pouring in like rain, end quote, and that a bloodthirsty mob had descended on the suites. By any measure, that established self-defense. But Toms remained determined to, quote, to bring those 11 Negroes to trial. Tom sent his assistant prosecutor, Ted Kennedy, out to conduct additional interviews with the police and neighbors to shore up the case against Sweet and his friends. Two key points need to be nailed down, the size of the crowd and the time when the rocks were first thrown. Michigan law defined a mob as more than 12 armed people or 30 unarmed assembled to intimidate or inflict harm, which meant causing $25 in damage to a piece of property. It wasn't just the Sweets who insisted there was a mob. The very newspapers that had branded them as killers described hundreds of people swarming Garland Avenue. Shipnet's version, though, had to be supported, and Kennedy's job was to nail down the police inspector's story and then get independent corroborating testimony. After just a few questions, it was clear to him that the case rested on quicksand. The assistant prosecutor strongly suggested that Shipnet's answers were rehearsed informed not by the truth, but by a quick glance at Michigan law books. But, but Kennedy had a job to do. And as he turned to the next door neighbors, the tone of his questions, along with his body language, helped steer them to the right answers. Those corroborating statements, buttressing an avalanche of police evidence, convinced Tom's to proceed. He would, as well, ensure that the Swedes would face an all-white jury. And if he couldn't convince 12 Caucasians to convict, to convict 11 Negroes who invaded a white neighborhood armed to the teeth, well, then he didn't deserve his salary. He'd already seen it to, he'd already seen to it that the Swedes were denied bail and would have to languish in jail until the jury decided their fate months later. As the trial began, Tom's described the empty rooms contrasted with the full supply of weapons, driving home the point that the defendants agreed to a preconceived conspiracy to murder, which, plotting by the people holed up in the house on Garland, he explained to the jury was evident from the results of the interrogations. At the police station, Kennedy had kept after Dr. Sweet about the guns. When had they arrived? Why were weapons in the house? And who had brought them? Sweet dodged and dodged, but the assistant prosecutor was relentless. When you moved in, you had the arsenal up there with you, knowing you're going to have trouble, didn't you? Yes, the doctor finally said. If Sweet knew there was going to be trouble, Kennedy probed. Why did you move in there then? Sweet's response? Because I bought the house, and it was my house, and I felt I had a right to live in it. Carried no weight. Blacks had no property rights in white neighborhoods. Henry Sweet eventually admitted that he had fired a rifle, but only after the rocks began, began coming in on me. Kennedy was unimpressed. Did any of them hit you? If you stayed out of the front room, you wouldn't have been hit, would you? 
Tom's summed up his case at the end of the trial, the invasion of white the invasion of a white neighborhood, the arsenal in a sparsely furnished house, the admission that shots had rung out from the upstairs window, it all meant only one thing. Leon Briner was shot through the back from ambush. And as a prosecutor told the jury, you can't make anything out of those facts but cold-blooded murder. Watching the sweet case unfold, Walter White, assistant secretary of the NAACP, immediately recognized that if the ancient Anglo-Saxon principle that a man's home is his castle were not made applicable to Negroes, we knew that other and even more determined attacks would be made upon the homes of Negroes throughout the country. The association declared that if Black people in Detroit couldn't protect their home from a white mob, then no Black person anywhere in America was safe. The NAACP had therefore rushed to pull together a legal team to help the Swedes, including famed attorney Clarence Darrow, for whom this case was about a sacred ancient right that of protection of home and life. And as David Lilienthal wrote in The Nation, the question was, did Negroes have the same right of self-defense as white people? Patiently and meticulously, Darrow and his co-counsel, Arthur Garfield Hayes, picked apart the lies, the coach testimony, and the half-truths of the neighbors, homeowners, association leaders, and police. The size of the crowd inched well above Shipnick's 12. The rocks were acknowledged as a hailstorm. And eventually, a homeowners association discussion concerning property values was revealed to have been about the level of violence necessary to oust the suites. During closing arguments, Darrow explained for the jurors' benefit that the prosecution's case was based on racism and lies. Every one of them, the prosecution's witnesses, perjured themselves over and over and over and over again to send 11 Black people to prison for life. What was more, he added, they had perjured themselves on behalf of what they think is their noble Nordic race. Acquit my clients, he assisted, and repair the damage caused by America's shameful original sin. Several days of de deliberations later, Darrow did not get what he wanted, but neither did Tom's. Five jurors voted for acquittal. Seven, however, repeatedly voted to convict Ossian and Henry Sweet for murder. It was then a hung jury. Yet despite the fact that Darrow had exposed a perjured testimony and legal weaknesses in the case, Tom's refused to drop the charges. And so there was a second trial at which Henry Sweet, an admitted shooter, was the first to be tried. Darrow was more than ready. This time he suspected that the lying would be all the more obvious and with, with many other prosecution witnesses having forgotten the testimony that they gave at their first trial. Even the press taking notice of their irregularities, excuse me, had begun to tone down its polyamics. Having already managed to establish that so many cars had been in the area that night that the police had to had had to barricade the street, Darrow explained to the jurors, this is, there is nothing but prejudice in this case. If it was reversed and 11 white men had shot and killed a black while protecting their home and their lives against a mob of blacks, nobody would have dreamed of having them indicted. They would have been given medals instead. With each crack in witnesses' testimony, Tom's case fell apart. By the time of his closing statement, therefore, he was reduced to arguing that even if there were 500 people out that night, Michigan law might call that a mob, but the doctor and his friends had no right to do so. Toms went on to argue that prejudice and intolerance had nothing to do with this case. Nevertheless, he said it wasn't unreasonable for the community association to want to maintain the racial purity of their neighborhood. 
Thomas continued to minimize what a rock-throwing mob converging on the house at Garland Avenue actually meant to those trapped in the home. Even though the prosecution's own witnesses, under intense cross-examination, admitted to Stones having positively pounded the bungalow, Toms remarked that it couldn't have been that intense because only two panes of glass had broken. The only thing that mattered was that Leon Briner, a white man, was now dead. And Toms, as he continued his closing arguments, wanted the all-white jury to understand why. The killing of that family man happened because the sweets and their families were uppity. They murdered Briner just to impress on the right people that they didn't propose to be driven out. Sweet thought that he had the right to live wherever he wanted to live by any means he chose to adopt. It was not fear that led Henry Sweet to pull the trigger, Tom stated that by way of conclusion. It was hate. It was arrogance. Bryna was sacrificed on the altar of Henry Sweet's rights and privileges. This time, though, the jury didn't buy Tom's argument and the foreman pronounced Henry Sweet not guilty. The costs of this legal victory, however, were painfully, staggeringly high. Gladys Sweet, the doctor's wife, who had been cooking dinner when the rocks and bullets started flying, contracted tuberculosis, tuberculosis while being held for nearly a month in the dank, crowded, and unsanitary jail. Their baby daughter had also become infected, as did Henry. All of them died. Ossie and Sweet, who had fought so hard, tried to soldier on, but eventually he faced foreclosure, had to sell the home on Garland Avenue, and was forced to move to a small apartment in Black Bottom. He put a gun to his head one night and pulled the trigger. That's the end of chapter two. Um, that's the end of chapter two, derailing the great migration. And we'll come back to chapter three. And I want to talk about chapter two. And it, it's, it's funny how sometimes where we're at with this type of learning and education can mirror what's happening in real life. And it, it, it strikes me that where we picked up today is really speaking to the sweets fighting back against the mob of white people for defending a place that's theirs, defending their home. And it's going to be a loose, a loose connection, but follow me here. You have you have Dr. Sweet who has moved into his home. He's purchased his home. This home is his, it's his property. Now he lives there now. And because people who also occupied property in that area. So we'll call Detroit, that neighborhood in Detroit, we'll call it the land. And Dr. Sweet and his family owned a portion of that land. Also on that land were the majority of white people. And they felt that the Sweets did not belong on that portion of that entire strip of land. The loose, the loose connection that I'm making here is Palestinians and Israelis. Or Israelis, excuse me. You have the entire strip of land. You have the Palestinians. This is their home. This is this is their home. This is where they live. This is where they're indigenous to. And you've got Israel that wants them out and is doing everything they can to get them out even though it's their land and Israel has been working at a genocide for years, for decades and doing everything they can in their power to 
eliminate the Palestinians. And when the Palestinians, a portion of the Palestinians, a, a, a group put a group that was elected by Israel has decided enough is enough. And they decide to fight back to protect their land. Now Israel is calling themselves the victim. I've been struggling with this. We're going to go a little off topic here, but it's on topic. I've been, I've been struggling with finding a, a way to understand where we're at in this world. I don't know how, I don't know how we go forward from here. We're watching a mass genocide. And the reason why I'm struggling is because this is not the first genocide that has happened. This is not this is not the first time this has happened. This is not the first time that's happened in Palestine with, with Palestine and, is, and Israel. This has been going on since 1948. Um, roughly 1948. Please don't quote me on that year. Um, but this has been going on. This has been happening. This is nothing new. And as a black woman, knowing that the historical, the history behind these attempts at genocide, it has been overwhelming. It has been overwhelming. It's been overwhelming because now we're seeing it. We're seeing it so much more. We're seeing history again continue itself. What I just described, it's a loose comparison, but it's the same situation. We have people that own this place where they live, that they rightfully own it. And because somebody else feels that they don't belong there, they're doing everything in their power to get rid of them to the point of murder. All because they don't feel like somebody else belongs there to a, a place that's, that's theirs, that is theirs. And this is what we, this is what we see. This is what we're living. We are living in a true genocide. We're living in a genocidal world right now, where if you have a group of people that does not believe another group of people should exist, they will do everything in their power to get rid of them. We see this with black people, with indigenous people, with Asian people, with queer people, with trans people, with disabled people. Right now, if you are not a cishet, white, wealthy man, It is hard to believe that you have a place in this world, knowing that you do. And, you know, we can tell these stories, we can read these stories, we can talk about it, we can talk about it, we can talk about it, and we need to talk about it. And we need to keep learning about it. This book is so important right now. Reading authors, uh, reading, for, uh, reading about what's going on in Palestine is so important right now. Reading the history of Palestine and Israel and the conflict there. That's so important. We need to be educated on it. And I know it can be overwhelming and I know it can be exhausting. And there's been a conversation that has been going on. We are going, I don't want to say off topic, but we're talking a draft. I know there's been conversations about making sure that you're taking care of your mental health. And that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true to make sure that your mental health is okay. I am going to encourage and invite and, and strongly suggest to people to understand that taking care of your mental health can look a lot of different ways. And that does not have to negate the fact that you are doing everything you can to uplift the voices of the people that need to be heard right now. You can take care of your mental health without digesting those horrific and violent images. You can uplift the voices of other people without exposing yourself to those. There are content creators, there are educators, like I mentioned, there are books that you can read. You can talk about this. There are apps that you can call your representatives to say, let's stop funding this fucking war because this country that we live in, if you're in the United States, 
are not only supporting these genocidal acts, but we're funding it. So there are ways that you can participate and there are ways that you can activate. There are ways that you can support that still keep you safe, that keep your mental health safe. I want people to recognize that they do not have to immerse themselves in the violent, violent visuals as a way of supporting a marginalized community. It goes along with the same concept where we've talked before, if you're with me on any other social media platform, that you don't have to try and relate to what somebody is going through as part of your support for them or as part as your uplifting or as part as of being an, an, an advocate for them. You do not have to relate to what they're going through. These are those moments where you can have compassion for what people are going through. You can have compassion and you do what you can to remove that harm for them. If you are a non-white person, I don't want to say non-white person. If you are not a cishet, white, wealthy man, then at some point you have found yourself in a position where the world has considered you less than. If you're a woman, if you're black, indigenous, another person of the global majority, disabled, queer, on and on and on. Again, if you are not a cisgender, heterosexual, white, wealthy man, the world has at some point made you feel like you are not worthy of being here, which means that you have, you have the recognition of being ostracized and being considered not worth being here. So when you have that, that is that slice of empathy that people also try to look for. You have that piece of empathy. You can recognize, while it may not be on the same scale, yes, we can recognize that the bombings that are happening in Palestine are not quite the same as legislator here, legislation here in the States. That does not make it any less intense when we think about the fact that the legislation here in the States is what's killing people here today. But it gives you that empathy and that empathy and that compassion combined is what allows you to be an advocate. It's what allows you to do what is necessary to get these voices out here to understand and to, to just explain and shout out that we do not need to be and war. We do not need to keep continuing this war. We do not need to eradicate any human being. There's absolutely no need for that. And it sounds lofty and it sounds naive and it sounds very, but everybody should belong, but everybody should fucking belong. Every, there's, there is room for everybody here and it sounds so trivial and it sounds so juvenile, but there is room for everybody here. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, nobody should get to decide who was worth more than somebody else. That should not be a decision that anybody else is making. I, I, I want, I want, I want people to just really sit with what this world is looking right, looking like right now. Excuse me. I want people to think about. I want people to think about the fact that. The majority of us are hopeless or feeling hopeless. I want people to think about what is happening today. What is happening today is inching us closer and closer to a place that we cannot come back from. And we've been heading that way. We've been heading that way. If we go back to the history of this book, when we're talking about the, the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans, 
there was no going back from that. We're still trying to recover or establish something from this. And we keep adding onto it, keep adding onto it. And it seems so hopeless, but somehow we're still here. We're still here. And if you're with me here, then you've recognized that even in these moments where we feel hopeless, even in these moments where we just feel overwhelmed, we can still do something. We can still do something. There are many ways, many ways to have your voice heard or to uplift the voices of people around you. Journal prompt for this reading. Um, I want you to think about ways. I want you to think about ways that you can make your voice heard. I want you to think about ways that you're taking your activism and your advocacy offline. We're doing so much work here and I'm so proud of you. What are you doing offline? And a little bit of homework. There is an app called five numbers that you can download to contact your representatives to say, stop funding this fucking war. I'm proud of y'all. Make sure to stay hydrated. And we will pick up with chapter three next week. Take care of yourselves.